So Dan, are you one, two weeks in? How's little Sasha doing? Two and a bit weeks in, he's doing well. He's doing really well. He's sort of managing to sleep in at least kind of two, two and a half hour chunks most of the time at the moment. So that is at least a bit of a blessing. I'm back at work as of this week for a few days. So things generally coming along reasonably well. Everything's kind of going okay. And Dan and I saw each other in the office yesterday and I think you were fairly excited. It's fair to say that you were kind of out and about and moving around again. Oh yeah, that was great. It was like first time out of the house for a couple of weeks. I was in the big city in London and we went out for lunch, didn't we? It was great just to go out and get some other kind of inputs into your life. That was good. But generally speaking, things ticking along really nicely at home. So yeah, that's good as well. Excellent. Should we talk about today's episode? It's a special one that's not in sync with the normal schedule. Yeah, it's a special. We wanted to do a special, didn't we? Because I guess we spend a lot of time trying to identify some of these really long-term investment themes looking beyond the immediate horizon in terms of what investors should be thinking about. That is generally what we're trying to do. But of course, when one of the biggest stories in investing is happening right in your front garden, so to speak, it just seemed a bit odd, didn't it? Not for us to take a stab at trying to unpack it. I think that's right. And I think there are so many potential learnings and different ways that people might do things in the future that actually, whilst it's a short-term market turmoil kind of theme, I think there's a lot of long-term consequences. We're sort of trying to unpick what some of those look like. I think there's something to be said for making the balanced case for why people did LDI, why people are going to continue doing it. And I think it's important to keep getting that message out there and people hearing it directly from clients and advisors and those kind of people. Yeah. And actually, so Dan, you did a piece for the FT in the midst of everything, didn't you, in terms of what the history of LDI is and why people use it just to try and give that balance in the story. I put out a couple of Twitter threads that got a lot of views and the FT got in touch and said, hey, would you like to write a little piece for their blog, which I did on the history of LDI, which people seem to find quite helpful. That got read quite a lot. It got quite a lot of comments, actually. It certainly brought out the commenters, which is not always advisable to look at the comments people put in your articles, I find. (laughs) But there you go. And actually, fun fact was that the day I picked up my emails this week when I got back to work, obviously, but the day... After my son, Sasha, was born, I had an email from Radio 4 saying, hey, would you like to come on the Today program tomorrow to talk about LDI? And of course, that was two weeks ago now. So that opportunity is long since gone. So that was a bit of a missed opportunity, but trying to write sensible, balanced stuff and put forward the case for what we've been doing in LDI for so long, really. And so to try again to achieve that balance, we've got two guests today, one at a time, which is again a little bit different from usual. So first, we've got Steve Hodder, who's a fellow partner at LCP. And then we've also got Keith Scott, who's an independent trustee at Lord Adventure. So we've got a sort of advisor and trustee angle. So hopefully everyone enjoys this episode, finds it informative and helps you look through the noise into the future. Brilliant. Let's get to it, shall we? Let's do it. Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. So we're talking the big question of the moment, which is DB pension funds, LDI and gilts and everything around that. We were really keen to jump online with our colleague, Steve Hodder, to have a really good conversation around this. So Steve, welcome. Hi, Dan. Hi, Mary. Welcome, Steve. So I think last time we spoke to you, which was maybe early summer, you were telling us about your five-week-old baby girl. Wondered how things are going. Five weeks last time. She's five months now. Quite a lot's (laughs) happened in the interim. I feel about 10 years older, if I'm honest. But yeah, probably wouldn't have guessed. I mean, we were last time talking about rising rates. I don't think we were expecting such an extreme and such a sharp move. But yeah, five months now, she's seen two monarchs 
three prime ministers, four chancellors, I think, and possibly lots <laughs> of other things I haven't remembered. But yeah, it's certainly interesting times. This generation of babies are going to be extremely wise, aren't they, by the time they're one? Absolutely. Five months is a very different place to five weeks, actually, talking from experience there as well on both sides of that, isn't it, Steve? Things have developed a lot by then. Yeah, we're firmly in the can we get her to sleep stage. And to be honest, chatting through LDI and leverage and how it works and what swaps are, that's helping. I wish it was fully solving the problem, but I'm sure we'll get there. Super. All right. Well, let's get right into it then, shall we, Steve? I mean, Steve, you've done a couple of webinars recently. You've done some internal presentations as well as obviously talking to all of your clients around it. Why don't you just kind of fill listeners in on what are some of the key actions that you've been talking about with clients and that clients have been taking over these last couple of weeks? Yeah, absolutely, Dan. So it all started with the not so mini budget as it was just over a month ago now. And that's where we saw guilt yields increase quite sharply. I mean, they'd already been rising, but that's where we started to see the quite violent moves. So for the vast majority of schemes that we deal with that use LDI to manage their funding level risk, that created all kinds of challenges. We saw LDI managers asking for more cash at quite short notice. Schemes generally all had pretty good plans in place to allow them to move cash around. It was really just the severity of those guilt market movements and the speed which caused a few clients, a few head scratching and a few quick reaction meetings and quick reaction decisions. But that's been the vast bulk of the past few weeks. Most schemes reorganizing assets, getting more liquid assets across to LDI managers, more collateral alongside LDI hedging, trying to keep most or all of that hedging in place so that they're not now open to big swings in their funding positions. I think it's fair to say for the vast majority of schemes that we advise, the vast majority of schemes that we see, that process has gone pretty well. I think everyone probably wasn't expecting to have as many pensions calls in the past months as they had, but the vast majority of schemes have moved the cash around as they need to, kept their LDI risk management in place and are now sort of working out what comes next, which is quite a big and quite an open question. Yeah, absolutely. I suppose, and I'm sure many of the listeners completely get this point already, but key point here is that for many, many schemes, it wasn't a financial event. It was more of a liquidity or an operational strain that clients were seeing there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think I mean, we do some analysis semi-regularly on the financial position of the FTSE 100 schemes, the largest companies in the UK and the DB schemes that they sponsor. Those were sort of fully funded on an accounting basis back in 2020. We think they're now 160 billion in surplus, and that number jumped 20 billion in September alone. So I think just absolutely right, Mary. And I think one of the back currents that has been lost in some of the commentary on this is that the underlying financial position of these schemes is incredibly strong. And if anything has been strengthened, because rising bond yields improve scheme funding positions most of the time, this has been a liquidity management crunch. It's not been a sort of a drastic worsening in aggregate scheme position. One question I always get from people sort of who are on the edges of this conversation is always saying, well, a scheme's really trying to keep those same hedging levels, is the conversation sometimes around reducing those? If you may just want to share what your experience has been on that, Steve, is it the case that schemes are looking to maintain? What's the demand actually from clients that you hear? The start point for my schemes, the schemes I work with, has been to maintain the hedging that they've got. And part of the reason for that is just simply the yield available on these bonds is considerably higher than it was. So I think you were happy to hedge your exposure to government bonds when they were yielding 1%. At points over the past three, four weeks, they've been yielding 5%. We've generally been looking at it and saying, look, 
let's try and keep the hedging in place now it's yielding five times as much rather than using that as an opportunity to take it off. I don't think government debt will go back to a 1% yield, certainly not anytime soon, but there's scope for it to fall back down a bit. So there's sort of an argument to keep in place just on relative value grounds. The other core principle that I've been working to is LDI liability hedging. It's a risk management tool. It's trying to keep some stability in your funding position. It's trying to keep some stability in your sponsor's balance sheet position. We've never seen gilt markets this volatile. So for lots of my clients, I've been positioning that the last thing we want to do is to abandon our risk management tools at a time of extreme risk. So let's try and keep it in place if we can. Let's try and solidify things. If that means foregoing some of our longer term investments, at least temporarily until the dust has settled and we can revisit the situation, then that's probably something I'm happy to do in order to not sort of expose my scheme at a time of extreme volatility. I was in a call for a client where I advised the company last week. The trustee advisor was saying over the month of September, the gilt market was significantly more volatile than the Bitcoin market. It's an interesting fact just to have kind of at your fingertips sort of thing. But I suppose the point is when gilt markets are volatile, your liability value is also volatile. So yes, it's extreme to see volatility, but we've seen gilt volatility in the last decade, to be frank, we've seen guilt volatility. We've seen guilt's not doing what they were supposed to do if you read an economic textbook for a really long time. The point is it sort of doesn't matter if it's doing the same thing that your liabilities are doing, if that's something that's helping you to get to the point where you can afford to pay all, all the benefits you've promised. Yeah, I mean, we've been seeing scheme liabilities move by 30% in three days at points. And if you've got your hedging in place and your scheme funding position staying fairly stable, I think a lot of initial reactions, seeing all this negativity about LDI in the press and it all feeling like it's become a problem, a lot of initial reaction or gut reaction is, well, maybe we should give up on this thing and go back to a different approach. But when you then spell out, okay, well, we could, but the funding position at our next valuation, whenever that might be, might be 30, 40, 50% worse than it is today. Suddenly you see the trustees and in particular the sponsoring employers finance director prick up and say, oh, hold on a sec. I have remembered why we hedge these things and maybe I'm happy to keep that in place. That's part of it, isn't it? I mean, I think it's important to make the point that in a lot of cases, if you look back to say a year ago, liability present values of roughly halved, give or take, from where they were a year ago, which is to say, we think you need about half the assets that you did a year ago to be considered fully funded, which is a sort of huge change. It's all come through guilt yields. And I was reflecting on this the other day. I think it's become quite sort of trendy. A lot of people kind of knock guilt yields as a thing generally. People might say, well, why are you using these guilt yields to discount or to invest around? And it's difficult, isn't it? Because whatever alternative approach you sort of propose, you do end up getting back to the same place. And one example is people might say, well, why don't you discount using the assets? But then when you look at the assets, when you build up the expected return on most asset portfolios, as we know, it tends to start from the guilt rate because the risk-free rate is just a fundamental building block of the kind of the financial system, really. So it's funny, isn't it? You can sort of say, oh, you've got these crazy guilt rates that are doing these crazy things. Why on earth would you build a framework around it? And it kind of does come back to, well, they are kind of the building blocks of the whole financial system. And so the fact they were getting quite volatile is a problem for financial stability generally. I agree with part of that. I have got a slightly different take. I think for me, one really important factor in why guilt yields are so relevant to pension schemes is you can change how you measure your own scheme liabilities. You can choose to do things differently if you like. You can't change how your accounting of your sponsoring employer will measure liabilities that will be related to bond yields. 
And importantly, for probably the vast majority of schemes, you can't change how buyout insurers are going to value your liabilities. If that becomes your end goal at some point, then that will be linked at least somewhat to movements in guilt yields. I think there is a case, and I have got some clients that do this, to make your liabilities a bit less linked to gilts and say, look, gilt markets, as you say, Dan, are a helpful reference point. It's a helpful sort of economic concept that you've got a risk-free rate and everything else offers a return above it. It is a bit of a strange market in a sense that it's very dominated by pension funds. They're not always the most price-sensitive buyers. I can see an alternative case where you say, we've got a good range of global assets. Don't really think that every return related to my global assets links to what goes on in this relatively small UK gilt market. And therefore, if I can set some more stable expected returns based on yields of other things, then that might improve things. And as we've said up top, I think for many schemes, this will be a relatively simple challenge because they'll be using or they've had to find more cash to pull alongside their LDI fine, but they're in a better funding position. So it's not a big problem. I think there are some other schemes who might now revisit the question of, do we need our liabilities to be quite so dominated by guilt market movements or not? If I can now only afford my assets to move a bit less like guilt, can I just make my liabilities move a bit less like guilt and then be happy that way? And it will be really interesting how that plays out, obviously, with linking through to regulation as, as well, which those involved in pensions will be well aware we're due some new regulations quite soon. So we'll see. The other point Steve makes is that the point on the buyout, given that schemes on average are so much closer to buyout now, we, you were sort of recapping funding positions earlier, Steve. I mean, we're sort of talking, aren't we, about close to 100% really on buyout-ish, aren't we? Near as makes no difference sort of thing in a lot of cases. And so if anything, schemes are going to be more, not less focused on that as a measure, which brings more, not less focus on guilts as the underpinning for everything. So that's actually where the reality is pointing at. And absolutely right. The alternative I alluded to of sort of measuring things slightly differently, it does come with consequences. And one is you end up with liabilities that move more differently to how everyone else measures them. And at points over the past five, 10 years, that would have left you looking in a slightly strange place. Even if you don't love the concept and even if you want your assets to be a bit more stable, if you're now at 90%, 95% funded on a full buyout of the scheme's liabilities, I think it will be forefront and a key objective for most in that situation to keep that relatively stable and keep that position locked in rather than taking a different view and finding in a few years time you're back down at 70% funded on buyout. I'm keen we sort of start looking at what the new world might look like but I wondered Steve if you've got any sort of principles or framing that you've used with the discussions in the last few weeks with your clients and of course experience across LCP because some of these schemes will have been making decisions quicker than they've ever had to make them before. And just wondering whether there was anything you've sort of picked up through those conversations. As is always helpful, when you get a period of extreme volatility and you're forced to sort of challenge what you thought you knew before, I've been trying to go back to sort of first principles on all this and just say, look, what are we actually trying to achieve here? And I think for most of my schemes, we came up with a priority order of four. First one being pay members' benefits as they fall due. So whatever nonsense we're seeing in the liability valuations or how much asset return I might get in 30 years time or whatever else, let's not forget that over the next three, six, nine, 12 months, we've got X million of liquidity that we're going to need and we need to make sure we pay that. Once you've done that, next thought is make sure we're ready to pay any other commitments that are due. Slightly behind members' benefits, but many schemes, if they're using illiquid assets, they might have commitments to illiquid funds that will call. We did a bit of weekend pouring over documents that we've signed in some cases, but those are pretty watertight commitments and things that you really don't want to renege on. So 
in many cases, that's second priority. Let's get a real good handle on how much else we might have to pay and make sure we can pay it. Then I think the third priority order for most schemes is risk management. Keep your risk management tools in place. Keep your hedging in place, as discussed earlier. We're in, hopefully, a short-term period of extreme volatility in funding markets. And most of my clients recognize that actually keeping an element of hedging as best we can against that and not exposing the scheme to really short-term movements in things is a good thing to do. And then the fourth priority is remembering the long-term funding plan. And I have put that forth. And yes, in some cases, I mean, we've got to a point where we've said, look, we've got some liquid growth assets that we were otherwise wanting as part of our 20-year plan to generate returns. But let's have a three-month plan for now to keep the scheme liquid, to keep the schemes hedging in place, to protect what we've got. And we can always come back to that later and work out how and if we need to revise the long-term funding plan. So I think in some cases, remembering that you can make short-term liquidity management decisions without automatically changing everything about your long-term plan and causing lots of problems. So that has come at the lower end of the priority list, but probably the one that we're now getting to the point of revisiting and working out how and if that needs to change. Absolutely. And I suppose the other angle there is that that long-term plan, maybe it does still make loads of sense, but maybe with guilt yields being much higher at this stage, funding deficit is smaller if not funding level, also better. And so actually your plan is probably going to evolve anyway, as you said earlier. Absolutely. And in some cases, there's been a sort of a, I can't work out whether this is a coincidence or whether it's by design, but there's been a convenient sort of handshake between we probably now need a bit less in growth assets, we're closer to our long-term goal, and we probably now need more money supporting our LDI. That gives you quite an easy conclusion of let's just tip a bit across and be happy. And in some cases, we... I mean, one of my clients, we had a call from the LDI manager for a certain amount of money. We also hit a de-risking trigger the night before that said we would move that same amount of money from equities into bonds. And that's become quite an easy decision. So, yeah, that's a position that I think lots of schemes will find themselves in once they've taken a look and the dust has settled. And obviously, the specific size of LDI collateral calls is different between managers and not something you predicted in advance. But Steve, that sounds like a very well laid plan there. Well laid plans when they work, aren't they? But yeah. Absolutely. Just picking up a couple of things like super quick. I mean, I guess, Steve, I think what I thought was really interesting there, I guess it's sort of obvious, but bears repeating is if you're going to be able to make reasonably fast decisions in a volatile world, you just have to have a framework and principles, right? Otherwise, you've just got no hope. I think it would be the first lesson. So you've got to be able to go back to some kind of principles and priority order and your five points, whatever, sounded like a really good start on that. And then the other point is the acceleration of the plans. And one thing I've been thinking about is have we basically just accelerated 10 years of asset allocation changes into six months, probably, if you count the earlier part of the summer as well. And so obviously that feels really extreme. There's just a lot of work to do and a lot of stuff moving around that it might feel a bit uncomfortable. But in one light, I think that's what you're sort of saying, isn't it, Steve? It's kind of like an acceleration of the sort of planned stuff that was out there anyway. Yeah. And where many schemes will be finding themselves closer to ultimate goals and they're ahead on where they thought they were going to be and probably adopting lower risk strategies. I think one really interesting aspect to come will be the buyout market and how it operates. And I think there's a chart I never get out of my head showing annual buyout volumes over the past 10, 15 years, and it sort of is running at 30 odd billion a year or something. And then a bar chart on the end of that of total aggregate DB liabilities, which are one and a half or two trillion. And basically, yes, lots of schemes will be in a better position than they were. Can they all jump in and do a buyout next year or the year after? Definitely not. It's just not the capacity. So I think one of the questions ahead of us is, well, what should you do if you're in a really strong position? Do you just hunker down and sit in guilts and cash and wait? Or 
Do you keep invested in reasonable strategy and generate surpluses that your employer can take? Do you try and grow the base so you can offer your members some discretionary increases? I think all of these things should be live. And especially that last one, we're in a world of 10 plus percent inflation. If you've got a scheme where members are getting a 2% inflationary increase on their benefits and you're sat now in a cash investment strategy, is there a better answer? Can we grind out some slightly better returns and give our members a more inflation-like benefit? I think all of those questions are ahead of us in terms of what those schemes should do. Let's get on to that in a sec. But actually, one other thing I just wanted to ask you quickly was, how have you found some of the communications with other stakeholders? The way you've sort of laid it out there, it feels like everyone's been quite aligned with the way they're thinking, but surely you must have had a few big people challenging you on this, maybe company people or new trustees who maybe weren't in place when these things were actually put in place. So saying, you know, why are we doing this? I don't like derivatives. Arguments of those ilk you must be familiar with a little bit. Yeah, definitely. And I think one thing that's been highlighted is I think there were trustees and people across the industry who were using LDI who possibly thought they understood it quite well. And then when push comes to shove and it becomes a volatile part of the strategy and it becomes a part of big focus, well, let's take a step back and remind ourselves what's actually going on here and how it works and what's happening and why. Absolutely. And I think one thing I've spent a lot of time thinking about is just the nature of the press coverage on all of this. And journalists to the main are are experts at selling stories and negative stories in particular are very easy to make into a scare headline. I haven't come across many journalists in what I've read that appear to be experts in LDI and how it functions and what it's used for and whether it's a good idea or not. So I do think we've seen quite a lot of words written about something that many people don't fully understand. And I think that's flown through into some of my client interactions where you've got people reading about stuff in the press, reading negative stories, reading Bank of England's had to bail out pension schemes, 65 billion pounds, things that aren't true, but can color your thinking. And if you're a trustee responsible for pension scheme assets and you're reading lots of criticism, whether it's fair or not, you're feeling a bit under fire on this stuff. So I think in lots of cases, it's been helpful to, again, just go back to basics. Why are we using this? How did it serve us through a period when guilt rates fell from 4% to 1%? Why is it behaving how it's behaving now? Is that in line with our expectations if this scenario were to happen? And I think once you work through some of those things, I think it can help refresh everyone a little bit on the facts of the situation. Absolutely. And so I suppose in the context of LDI as a concept isn't fundamentally broken, which I think is where we've well, it's definitely probably all of our beliefs, but where we've also got to in this conversation. Steve, do you want to just give us a quick overview of what you think LDI might look like in the new world? Just a few pointers to what managers might be doing, what clients can be doing to keep those positions robust. We'll be moving into an era of lower leverage LDI. So sort of rules of thumb, a month ago, lots of LDI funds had a sort of target leverage of about three times, and that might now be two times on average, something like that. That's partly due to pressure from Bank of England and others to make the system more volatile, but also I think the previous... Make the system less volatile. Sorry? Make the system less volatile. Make the system less volatile. Yeah, you're right. But I think also the sort of previous target leverage levels were rightly or wrongly set with reference to historic levels of volatility in these markets. And we've never seen this level of volatility. So if you asked a manager five years ago, how much leverage can you use prudently, then three times felt very sensible. I think if you ask a manager now, and they're coming up with a different answer. So lower leverage is point one. Then I think we're into some operational aspects. I don't think we can lose sight that from what we see, the vast majority of schemes got through this fine and have managed. But I think the situation has certainly shone a spotlight on some operational aspects of LDI funds. I think we've seen come to the fore significant advantages of having segregated accounts versus pooled funds. 
Now, that's not something that's possible for every scheme. You do need to be a bit larger, but I think there will be some looking, revisiting that question, possibly even happy to pay higher costs to run a segregated account if they feel like they've got better risk management for doing it. I think we'll see a revisiting of exactly where collateral should live. So some schemes have been happy to sort of have a best of breed approach. You've got your corporate bonds with one manager, you've got your ABS with another, you've got the LDI over here. I think there'll be more pressure to have everything in one place so that there's inherently a bit more control over it. And then final point, I think we'll see more synthesizing of other assets. So typical pensions strategy until now has been happy to use leverage to hedge liabilities, but own all my other assets outright. I think diversification of leverage might be something that comes to the fore a bit more. If we've still got a small equity exposure, should we use that alongside the LDI using derivatives too? Now, some ears will prick up there because it feels like we've had a derivative challenge and our solution is pour more derivatives on the fire. But I think, again, when you work through sort of the facts of how the collateral can operate in different scenarios, I think that might help some schemes be a bit more robust. And I suppose, again, particularly in the case where you can have that within the same bespoke or bespoke pooled fund wrapper, because then the collateral's actively shared between the two. To pose a bit of a provocative question, maybe, but it's the obvious one that we're going to get challenged on. So I'm sure we've all sort of reflected on it. What's your sort of answer to someone that says, well, we just shouldn't use leverage at all in asset allocation, in long-term asset allocation. It's not a good thing to use. How would you address that? For some schemes, we'll now adopt that position. And because they are now better funded, we'll be able, we'll have the luxury to say, you know what, that's right. I'd rather not use leverage if I don't have to. I'll sit in a portfolio of bonds and happy. I think leverage has a place in any portfolio if it's managed appropriately with the right controls in place and with the right governance in place. And I think that will continue to be the case for many schemes where they're not sort of already fully funded. They're not ready to invest solely in bonds. There's some thinking that needs to happen and some new solutions that need to come out to maybe improve the management and leverage in some places. But I think the concept of leverage being inappropriate is it's an easy one to jump on. I think it ultimately just makes scheme strategies less efficient. And if I think back to 15 years ago and 20 years ago when LDI strategies started to come to the fore, if a regulator had stepped in and said, no, no scheme should do this, I'm not sure how many of the 5,000 DB pension schemes would have gone bust when gilt yields went from 6-5% down to 1%, when we hit the COVID crisis, when schemes would have been doing valuations and suddenly asking their sponsor for another 30-40-50% of scheme assets because yet more unhedged liability risk is not the scheme over. So I don't think we should lose sight that using leverage in a sensible way helps schemes manage risks and generate returns and has got the UK DB pension scheme to a very, very well-funded place. So it has to have a role going forward, in my view. Well said. The point that I keep making is kind of, I think 1% leverage makes no difference to anything, whereas 100 times leverage on anything is kind of a disaster waiting to happen. I think you can come up with a line in the middle there in terms of what level is suitable. And what you're saying is that that line has moved. And you do find leverage, I think, in quite a few long-term investment propositions. For example, property funds will often have a bit of leverage. Infrastructure funds will have some leverage. Look at something like risk parity funds. They'll use leverage to get more efficient. That's been the principle behind sort of Bridgewater and Ray Dalio's success. You can even argue that likes of Berkshire Hathaway use leverage in the way they use their insurance float in the early days. I think it can be an inherently suitable thing in long-term investment strategies. And currency hedging. Currency, currency hedging. hedging is leverage. If you've got a global investment portfolio, but you don't want the overseas currency risk, most investors are very happy to just ask the manager to put some contracts on to hedge that exposure. That's two times leverage if you do that across your portfolio. 
but it's something that's sort of considered sensible and safe risk management in the same way that I think using modest leverage on liability hedging is too. I don't know if you remember, Mary, we spoke to Alison Schrager the first time. She was talking about her book. She writes about risk, basically. And she, I think she uses an analogy in that book. She is a little bit skeptical about the use of derivatives and stuff generally, I think it's fair to say. But she uses an analogy in the book with big wave surfing, which may be a slightly unlikely one. But she likens derivatives to jet skis in big wave surfing, which is that they can do two completely different things, which is that they can help you by pulling you out of difficulty when you get into trouble. But they can also put you into much more risky situations by allowing people to get towed into waves they would never be able to get into normally. And that's just the sort of duality you have to live with with derivatives. They can help you and they can also hurt you. And that's just how it works. We're in a world of taller waves. And so we should be using smaller jet skis. Is that, <laughs> that might be it actually. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But okay. I think the point she also made, because that was March 2020, that first conversation with her, I think, and she was making the point that everyone models volatility, everyone models asset risk, everyone says these LDI funds are leveraged and if yields rise, they could ask for more money. And sometimes until it happens, people slightly forget that. So we had rising equity markets for a really long time. We had falling gilt yields for a really long time. Doesn't mean it can't reverse. So for schemes that have weathered this recent volatility it's a reminder that actually these risks, they are real and having processes in place to deal with them is very beneficial. Yeah, I think that's such a really, really good point because behaviorally, it is just absolutely true that you get very anchored to the environment you've been in. That's just human nature. What's available, what's salient to you sort of defines the way you perceive the reality and the environment. And to have been in a certain particular environment for 10 years, that is just going to get baked into the way people think. It's going to get baked into the way people learn about the industry, the way people structure programs, the way people put these asset allocations together. So I think to sort of pretend otherwise would be to kind of deny human nature to some degree. So I think that is the point to be really reflective about, to say, well, to what extent had that previous regime been very formative in terms of how things have been put together and how might we want to sort of reimagine that a little bit. I think that's really key. Steve, you're doing a webinar next week, I believe. Yes, Mary. We're doing an LCP webinar next week, the 3rd of November at three o'clock. We've got Paul Johnson joining us, who's a leading economist who's going to talk about macroeconomic situation. And hopefully he's going to tell us what guilt yields are going to do over the next six months, but we'll push him on that. (laughs) And then Steve Webb, who's LCP partner and former pensions minister, is going to chair a discussion with me and some others about what this all means for schemes and what we should be doing. But hopefully we'll be leaving at least half the time for questions from the audience. So please do join us. Otherwise, we'll be sat with with nothing to talk about. Excellent. So we'll put the link to that in the show notes. Thanks, Steve, for confirming. Great. Link in the show notes and get a chance to hear from Steve again then. Brilliant. Okay, Steve, thanks so much for your time. Thank you both. Thanks, Steve. So for the second leg of this conversation, we were really keen to move the conversation on a little bit and talk to someone who is on the client side of this whole conversation. So we're delighted to welcome Keith Scott, who is an independent trustee at Law Dementia. Keith, welcome. Thanks, Dan. Glad to be here. Welcome, Keith. Could you perhaps give the listeners a sense of your current role, but also previous roles that I guess would be particularly relevant to this conversation? Sure, Mary. So currently I'm at Law Dementia. I'm an independent trustee on eight schemes at the moment also sit on a couple of other investment committees. I've been at Law Venture for three years. Prior to that, I was at BMO Asset Management, as was. I was a client director there, looking after a lot of LDI clients. I did that role for almost five years. And before that, I spent most of my career at IBM, where I was the European Pension Director. Fantastic. So experience on, I think that means almost all sides of the 
story. So definitely add some weight to the conversation today. Yeah, that's what I like to tell people. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Fantastic. Let's get into it, Keith. I mean, why don't you fill us in a little bit? What are some of the actions that you've seen being taken across the clients that you work with and that you see over these last few weeks? So it's obviously been a very hectic period, Dan, and schemes have been managing this in a number of ways. So where they could, obviously, they've been trying to sell the liquid assets that they had and replenish the collateral with their LDI manager. Some sponsors have been able to help out with short-term loans or being able to accelerate some contributions that were already planned, and that's helped some schemes get over, over liquidity issues. But inevitably, some pension schemes have had to reduce hedging, either because they've been stopped out when they've hit sort of collateral limits or because anticipating that they've reduced hedging in advance. I think schemes that had segregated accounts or bespoke pooled funds probably managed through this a little bit better than those in pooled funds. And that's simply because they have a bit more flexibility about when they can trade and when they can add cash to their LDI fund. And Keith, I'm really keen to, so you mentioned just then that schemes had potentially had hedging reduced for two reasons. One is they sort of made a decision to reduce hedging and one is that they were stopped out. Could you just perhaps from a trustee perspective, talk about the way that those conversations have gone, because clearly both of them result in a reduced level of hedging, but presumably the conversation is quite different depending on which of those two you've ended up passing through. I think that's right. And for the schemes that were sort of stopped out, that wasn't really a trustee decision in the end. That happened because managers hit limits and had to reduce hedging, often in pooled funds because they hit the sort of knockout levels that require them to reduce hedging. I think where trustees have made a decision is where they've realised that they perhaps have more illiquid assets and aren't going to be able to raise collateral and then realise that going forward, they're not going to have enough headroom and it's better to reduce hedging a little bit now than reach that point where rates spike up and you're forced to reduce hedging. These are pretty significant decisions that are getting taken here in reasonably sort of compressed timescales. Any helpful principles or framing that you've found useful, Keith, in helping guide these trustee groups through making some of those decisions? I think one helpful principle, Dan, is to look at your scheme overall and say, well, how much collateral do I have if I was to sell my liquid assets? What's the sort of maximum amount I could tolerate rates and inflation moving and be able to maintain my hedge? And if you look at that and there's any remote possibility that you might have to reduce your hedge at some point, say that's within 500 basis points, it's worth then considering, do I need to do something about my level of hedge? Because what you absolutely don't want to do, even if it's quite unlikely, is have that situation where rates spike up and you're forced to reduce your hedging at the worst possible time. So I think having a look at that is important. The thing that's made that quite difficult is being able to get the data and the information to do that. Because throughout this period, it's been so hard to be able to get the information out of the LDI managers and also a lot of the consultant tools that we normally rely on to show us where we are on this stuff they're not really calibrated for these sort of big moves in rates. It was quite hard to figure out where you were sometimes. Absolutely. And I think we've all been experiencing that, obviously, on the consultant side of things as well. Tools are only as good as the inputs that they receive. And so sometimes if the Bloomberg ticker wasn't updating, there was not a great deal that could be done in that situation. I guess I'm keen to understand from your perspective, what sort of proportions are we talking about? So maybe across your rate schemes or maybe more broadly across Lord Adventure and I guess, extrapolating a little bit more to the pensions industry. Are you seeing it fairly common that hedging has been reduced or schemes have been stopped out? Or is it actually vast majority have been able to withstand, maybe they've had to scramble around and move money, but able to withstand these changes versus being forced to make changes? I think it's a very mixed picture, Mary, and I don't really have an idea of proportions. 
And I think what's difficult at the moment is a lot of people still trying to figure out exactly where they are. And so I think in the fullness of time, we'll get a bit more data on where schemes ended up and how they fared through this. But I think it's probably a little bit early at the moment to be able to say where the industry as a whole ended up. I suppose back to your point about data, it's not that easy to work that out at the moment. You've mentioned sort of looking at the scheme as a whole and that being helpful for decision making. Are there any areas that you feel have been perhaps underappreciated, forgotten, not focused on enough in the conversations that you've seen occur in the last few weeks? There's a few things that we should think about. One thing we shouldn't lose sight of is actually that that rising rates is actually a good thing for pension funds. I mean, it wasn't a good thing that it happened so quickly and caused this liquidity issue. But overall, I mean, most schemes, if they're able to maintain their hedging, are probably going to come out of this with a much lower solvency deficit, at least in pound terms, and probably be in a better position. We've been through a sort of 10 plus year period of falling rates, but those weren't the good times. Although LDI was going up, that was bad for pension schemes because liabilities were going up faster. So this environment of higher rates is actually positive for pension schemes. It's just what wasn't positive was it happened so quickly. As you've said already, the speed of the spike has been difficult to manage. But if you think about a scheme that's invested in pooled leveraged LDI funds for a number of years, we'll have seen a large number of re-leveraging events. So the opposite of what's happening now, where money is spat back out of those funds and they've been able to do what they decided with those monies. I haven't really gone back and worked out I don't know what the balance is between money that's been spat out and money that's just recently been sucked in. I'm not sure if anyone's done that analysis, but I suppose academically it's interesting. To be honest, it probably doesn't really make much difference to what schemes do now because just because you had the money spat out and you did something with it doesn't mean you can't or you wouldn't want to put it back in now. The reason most schemes are doing LDI is to try and reduce the volatility of the funding level. It's not about this is not an investment we're looking to make money out of. It's about managing that funding level and that volatility. And I think in that respect, it's been successful. Keith, on a slightly different note, how have you found some of the communications at this time with other really important stakeholders, like, for example, your fellow trustees or maybe the company or any other sort of stakeholders of the pension scheme? I mean, I guess there's been a lot of messages flying around and we've been in the weird situation that we've been sort of in front page of the news type thing. Has that affected how some of these key stakeholders have seen it and has it made it difficult? Or what would be your reflections on how those comms have gone? I think it's been a bit mixed, Dan. In my experience, sponsors have been generally quite helpful, although a lot more interested than usual. You get a lot more calls, as you say, when pensions are on the front page of the newspaper. I think for trustees, it's been a difficult time because governance structures have been really stretched. I mean, you know, the the governance model of most trustees doesn't really cope well with the need to make very quick decisions. And I think the fiduciary model obviously worked better in this scenario. And some trustees may look at that in the future in terms of trying to solve that governance problem. It probably wasn't perfect for fiduciary managers either because their model tends to focus on higher hedge ratios and some of them tend to have quite a bit of the liquid assets. So they had some strains as well. So I think that was a bit mixed. On the manager and consultant time, I think for the LDI managers, this was very difficult to manage because they had every consultant and every client calling them to find out what the position was and what they needed to do. And they just didn't have the resources to manage that. They had a very difficult time in terms of communicating. And I think for consultants, it was a bit mixed as well. For consultants, this was hard because they have to provide the advice for you to move things around. And to provide advice, you want data and you want analysis and you want to be able to show that you've done that advice well. But this was a situation where you had to be pragmatic and say, well, we don't have the data. We're just going to have to do something. 
and some consultants cope with that better than others. And I think we've talked in the past about the doing something is better than doing nothing and perfect being the enemy of good, which I think is quite relevant here. Yeah, and this was a scenario where it was better to err on the side of having too much liquidity, even if it sacrificed some return in the short term, because you could always put some money back into your return-seeking assets if, if you did too much. But because you couldn't really tell where you were, it was better to have a bit more collateral than what you needed. It's back to sort of decision-making in a situation of imperfect data, which is possible, like you say, based on if you can work from principles, I guess you can make decisions based on imperfect data. But we sometimes get quite used to almost having an embarrassment of so much data, even when we're making relatively trivial decisions. I suppose it can get us used to this world of really having access to sort of loads of info. But would you agree, Keith, that it is possible to make some of those decisions when you haven't got perfectly complete data or principles? I mean, I think you can, and I think you have to in the end. I mean, we had to make those decisions. As you say, Dan, we've had a luxury normally of all this data and plenty of time to look at it. And this was a situation where we had to move away from that. And for some people, it was easier than others. Some tried to stick to the normal process and you just couldn't do that. You had to just react quickly. But one thing I wanted to check quickly, how have you found it? Because one thing I've found is a lot of these schemes put the LDI in place quite a while ago in some cases, could even be up to 10 years ago. And you could well have situations where the individuals, the personalities on the trustee board have actually changed quite a lot over that period of time. Did you find situations where that was an issue, where people who'd come on board later were maybe questioning why it was done in the first place? Or did you think generally it was pretty well understood and accepted and agreed why people were doing it? I think it was a mixed picture across trustee boards, as you'd expect. I think there were certainly cases where trustees hadn't understood LDI perhaps as much as they thought they did. And this was a big shock that this could happen. And there were a lot of discussions about, well, remind me again, why do we have to maintain this hedge? Why is it important? So there were a lot of those discussions going on. I mean, but I think that's normal within any investment when something happens. You have to go back over it and, and remind yourself, why are we doing this? And are we still doing the right thing? Just to give us a sense, what were some of the arguments that you were making in those situations as to why they would keep doing it? One of the big questions was, why should we keep maintaining our hedge? Because it's fairly clear that rates are just going to keep going up. And obviously, the worry was rates could do this big spike up, but then they could drop down quite sharply again. Because always the thing that's important is, of course, long term. It's not short term rates. And even if the Bank of England is going to keep raising rates aggressively, it's quite possible that people then view that as generating a recession and long-term rates may come down. So what we were very worried about was rates spiking up to 6 7%, and then a month or two later, long rates getting all the way back down to 3% again. And the fear was, well, if you give up your hedging at 6 7%, and then it goes all the way back down, that creates a big deficit. So it was those kind of conversations to sort of remind people, look, we're not really doing this because we have a view on rates, whether they're going to go up or down. We're doing this because we want to manage volatility. And that's the reason we've always done it. That's what we should stick with. And almost doing it so that we don't have to have a view on rates. And I know we've, as you say, Keith, for the last sort of decade, we've been having those arguments in reverse, in a sense, where people have said they can't go any lower. And actually, for 10 years, they did continue to go lower. And the point was, we just don't want to have to make that call ourselves. Yeah, it's exactly that, Mary. You just don't want to worry about where interest rates or inflation are going. You just want to take that out of the equation. Should we, I guess, look forward, starting sort of big picture, maybe we'll go into a couple of details in terms of what the new world looks like. So Keith, you've already mentioned that many schemes will find themselves better funded on a solvency type basis. But I just wonder what your thoughts are on how the recent events maybe fit into or influence longer term journey plans. I think there'll be a few changes. I mean, one of the things that's been quite common in people's journey plans is to do partial buy-ins 
where they've got themselves reasonably well funded and then they've said well we'll do a portion of the pensioners for example as a buy-in and then we'll do multiple buy-ins until we eventually do the whole thing i think that will be more difficult for people going forward because when you do a partial buy-in what happens is you then have to leverage up typically more to hedge the rest of the remaining part of your liability because the pensioners that you do the buy-in for are the shorter part of the liability you have the longer part of the liability left and schemes might not have enough collateral to be able to do that going forward. So I think we might see a move away from these sort of partial buy-ins and schemes sort of waiting until they can do the whole thing at once rather than do it in part. I think the other big issue out of this is illiquid assets. So a lot of schemes had investments, maybe they had say 10, 15% in illiquid assets for very good reasons. They've now found because of the value of assets has come down so much that that waiting to illiquid assets has gone up quite a lot. They would quite like to reduce that. They'd quite like to have something they could use as collateral for LDI. But of course, most DB pension schemes have found themselves in that position. And so there aren't many buyers for these illiquid assets, certainly at the moment. And I think this is going to be a problem for the next few years in terms of how do you get out of these illiquid assets. Even if you want to do a buy-in and you've got enough money, if you've got some of those illiquid assets, it may be the thing that slows you up because it's going to be quite tough to get rid of those. Are you having many discussions around sale of such illiquid assets on the secondary market, for example, or is it a kind of actually we will sit tight because we'd rather keep hold of these for now? I think a lot of schemes are thinking, well, at the moment, I might as well keep hold of it if I can. If I don't have a reason to do a sale, I might as well keep hold of it and wait for sort of better conditions. But my sort of slight worry with this is when are those better conditions going to come? Because a lot of these are in structures that are only really suitable for DB schemes. Although in theory, they're sort of assets that might suit an insurer, they're in sort of pooled structures and things that insurers wouldn't buy. And therefore, who do you sell them to? And maybe a more sort of medium term problem. And then I guess the big question in some ways, Keith, what about use of LDI in the future? How are you seeing that in terms of the demand for it, first of all, more or less or the same? And how do you see it changing? I still think, Dan, that LDI is going to be a very important strategy for pension funds. We need to manage our risk. We need to manage interest rates and inflation. In the past sort of 10 years, LDI has been a very cheap strategy. Financing was very cheap. Collateral levels were not excessive. And so it was relatively cheap and easy to hedge a large proportion of your risk. And a lot of schemes hedged up to 100% of their asset value. I think what might happen going forward is because leverage is going to be more expensive, LDI managers are going to require much larger collateral pools to support that. It's going to be more expensive to have that level of hedging. And therefore, I think schemes will look at this and say, well, I get the most benefit in terms of risk reduction for that first percentage of hedging that I do. The more hedging that I do, the less benefit. For that last sort of 10, 20%, is it really worth the extra cost to do that anymore? So one thing that might change is the level of hedging that people do. They might not go up to that 100% anymore if particularly if they're constrained on collateral. And leverage generally, have you got sort of thoughts on what leverage looks like in the new world? You just mentioned less leverage in the LDI funds specifically. Yeah, so I think we're already seeing that amongst LDI managers, that they're reducing the sort of leverage levels that they're allowing in their pooled funds, they're changing the levels at which they'll call for collateral. You're seeing managers with segregated accounts saying that they'll require up to 300 basis points of headroom. So leverage generally will be lower. There are ways you can manage that. You can put more assets with your LDI manager and that makes them a bit more comfortable. So I think we'll see a bit more of that. We may see people diversifying their source of leverage a little bit. So rather than just having all the leverage in the LDI, 
they may say, okay, well, we have equities. Why don't we, instead of holding physical equities, we'll do that with futures. And that frees up some cash to provide us as collateral for LDI. And we'll just diversify our leverage a little bit. So I think you see some of those strategies coming in to manage things. And then specifically at the sort of manager level, I suppose, apart from LDI managers taking less leverage, are there any sort of implications you can see that you might expect managers to start imposing? And are there any things that you're keen to see from those managers? So based on the experience you've had in the last sort of month, what do you want managers to be doing in the future? I think one of the things that has come out of this is there's going to have to be better communication and better reporting on collateral levels. That's been the big frustration of most clients is just not knowing where you are and not having that visibility. And I think LDI managers can have to think about in these types of situations, how do they do that communication? How can they manage it? So I think that's probably an important point. The other thing that's been happening in LDI over a number of years is there's been a consistent grinding down of fees. Fees have got lower and lower on LDI. And I think a number of managers will look at this now and say, well, given the risk that we've seen in this business, given the fact that we're going to have to resource up for this to be able to provide the information and everything else, is this a business we want to be in or do we need to charge a bit more for this? I think we may see some fee pressure on LDI. I suppose it had become quite commoditized, I guess. Is that sort of a way of saying it might be viewed as a little bit more strategic in the future? I mean, I still think for managers, this is an attractive thing to be in, especially because I think there's going to be a trend now for people to put more of their assets with the LDI manager, because schemes manage through this whole process a lot more easily if they had other assets with their LDI manager that they could more easily sell and move into their LDI. So it's still a good, LDI is still an attractive proposition for managers to offer pension funds because they were able to add on a lot of things alongside it, and they probably have more ability to do that now than they did before this. I wondered, Keith, if we could end on, you've mentioned to us a point around a comparison to 2008, which I think both Dan and I really liked. I wondered if you minded ending on that point. I think it wraps up our conversation really well. 2008, I mean, one of the slightly strange things about this sort of crisis is it's in some ways been a bit created by the changes that were made after 2008 in that 2008 was a crisis about counterparty risk with Lehman and all these other banks. And people were worried that they'd gone into these transactions and the banks wouldn't be able to make good on those transactions. And so what was put in place after that was all of these things like central clearing and the requirement for everyone to post daily collateral in cash and match their positions. And of course, when you go to that model where you have to provide cash every time the market moves and you have to do it within a day, you greatly reduce the counterparty risk because if the bank disappears, the cash is there, but you're increasing liquidity risk because suddenly each party has to have the cash to be able to post. And so this is maybe a crisis that was created a little bit by some of the things that were put in place to fix the previous one. I think it's actually been a feature of crises if you go back even 100 years. I remember reading an article, I think it was in The Economist, but it was probably about 10 years ago, that went through all the crises from the very early 1900s. And effectively, everything you do to fix the last crisis, you never have a crisis for the same reason again. But sometimes the things you put in place to fix the previous crisis cause the next one, which means you don't see it coming because all of those processes that you've just put in place were risk-reducing processes. It's very difficult to see the other side of it. But I guess we live and we learn, don't we? That's right. That's been great. It's been such a good conversation. Keith, thanks so much for taking the time and being so generous with your thoughts today. Thanks a lot. No, thanks, Dan. Thanks, Mary. Good to talk to you. Thanks, Keith.
Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.